Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast. Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends. Welcome to Canine Hijinks. We are back today to talk about a little different take on having fun with our dogs, which is to make sure they're healthy enough for play. Healthy is good. We're welcoming Laura Abbott, a small animal veterinarian who is going to talk to us about communicable diseases and how to prevent them. Laura is mostly a virtual friend of mine, but we did meet briefly last summer when she came to pick up one of Tilly's puppies, now named Pick, and he's a handsome little guy if I do say so myself. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. So Laura is from Connecticut and grew up loving animals and riding horses competitively. She went to vet school in Knoxville, Tennessee, during which time her competition focus shifted from horses to dogs, primarily agility with her Jack Russell Terriers. After vet school, she moved back to Connecticut and began working as an ER veterinarian and currently splits her time between emergency and rehab medicine. She is owned by three rat terriers, 10-year-old semi-retired Kraft, five-year-old Roots, and up-and-coming nine-month-old Pick. She has competed at the national level in AKC, USDAA, and currently focuses primarily on UKI. I'm looking forward to learning more about communicable diseases in canines and what we can do to prevent them. So we really appreciate you spending the time with us. But before we get into that, we'd like to share more about what we've been up to with our dogs lately. So can you share a little more about what you've been up to in the last couple of weeks with your dogs? Well, uh, like I said, Kraft is semi-retired. He's had a little bit of a shoulder injury that I am hoping he is going to be able to come back from. He just had a checkup yesterday. Uh, which involved a bit of a road trip. So road trips are always a part of my dog's uh, lives. Um, So pick and roots got to come along, do a little bit of training out in a public park. Uh, So that was fun. Uh, We did a a seminar a couple of weeks ago as well. So that involved another road trip, um, four to six hours away. So, so yeah, road trips, trialing, training, that sort of thing. That sounds about right. And pick got to participate in that seminar, right? Yes, he did. He got to do his first uh, in public um, work, I guess. It wasn't really resembling agility very much, but he did do his very first tunnel there. So that was very exciting. That was fun to see. It's so fun to see them growing up and he's seems like he's turning out so nicely. Whitney, what have you been up to? Mostly agility. There was a competition, which I, I don't do it very often. I totally wussed out on the second day of the competition because the weather was just yuck, yuck, yuck. And there wasn't much of an opportunity to be inside at the particular venue that we were at. So the other thing I did order and receive a stack of dog frisbees so inspired by our episode I have I took those down the hill today and was throwing them for the dogs it's very interesting sprite we'll chase it she's doesn't quite understand to catch it in her mouth so it it'll be a fun little thing to work on that is very different than what we usually do and she definitely likes the discs she wants to chase them she wants to bring them back 
Um, we just have to work on that catching bit. And I tried to like throw rollers. I think I need a whole class on that. So that's what, that's what I've been up to. Alyssa, how about you? It's mostly been about agility for me. Of course, I was at that same trial this last weekend, um, had some issues with all his weaves, but I think I may have actually identified the problem. And last night she did several sets that were just fabulous. So I'm excited to see if those hold up here in the next couple of months. And, uh, she's now starting to really get into competition mode and we're loving it, having a lot of fun, learning a lot, finding the holes in our training and shoring those up. So lots of agility lately. Fun times. Now the fun begins. It, it's all, it's all been fun, but you know, so let's get to our topic then. Laura, we're leaning hard on your knowledge today to talk us through some of the common diseases that our dogs could be exposed to. So can you start with a general overview of the types of diseases that are communicable and what that means for dog owners? Sure. You probably think back to a, a biology class somewhere. You probably learned that the various infectious diseases that we get can fall into several different types of, of different things. There are viruses, there are bacteria, there's this other category of single-celled organisms called protozoa. Um, then you start getting into worms and types of things that are actual animals. You know, they're not single-celled organisms all the way up to um, things that are going to live on the outside of your dog, like fleas and ticks. So those all are the, the broad categories that I can think of. All the gross things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if they get more or less gross as that size goes up there. But. I don't know. Worms. Well, ticks are gross too, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then can you give us a list of the common ones that people might come across? As Alyssa mentioned in, in my intro, I do um, a lot of work in the ER. Um, I don't do a whole lot of general practice. So a lot of the things like vaccinations and preventions, I leave to the general practitioners. You know, I'm going to see the dogs coming in when they actually are sick and showing signs of these things. Um, So I'm going to come at it from a little bit of of that perspective of what happens when they are sick. That's certainly my area of expertise. Um, So the things that are going to come in very, very often, um, kennel cough, um, which I think was was a big one, a a big concern for for you guys. And certainly with all of our dogs kind of going around and being exposed to each other, doing dog sports, it's obviously a big one and, and one that we think of a lot as dog sport competitors in the long run not, not a super terrible one to get. If your dog's getting kennel cough, it's, it's annoying. It's, it's, it's inconvenient, but not too terrible in the long scheme of things. Parvovirus, very serious viral disease, and usually young dogs is one that we see very, very commonly. Uh, Leptospirosis, which is a bacterial disease. We actually had an outbreak of um, here on the East coast just a couple of months ago. And the main concern with that one is that it can be transmissible to people. Um, so we saw, yeah, yeah. Um, so that one was, was a big, a big concern when we had an outbreak of that as well. Now let's Um, go. That's one that I know we always give vaccines for, but I actually don't know what the symptoms of that one are. Fevers are the big one. Um, kind of early in the disease, they'll get little weird rashes and bleeding and bruising, which oftentimes you may not even notice. Um, so dogs have hair. Um, but when it goes to affect the kidneys and the liver, um, that's when you are going to, going to see it. Your dog will be vomiting and, and not feeling so great. And then the, the things will show up on the blood work that'll make your vet want to test for leptospirosis. Is that, is lepto the one that they contract through drinking water contaminated with usually fecal matter from wild animals? Is that correct? Not fecal matter, urine actually urine. Is, okay. is the 
one. And that's the the main one that you're going to get exposed to with your pet as well. If they, you know, because if they're part of their signs is going to be kidney failure, they will likely be having urinary accidents in the house that you're cleaning up. So um, it's important important to think about that with with an ill pet. Yeah. The and so is Giardia is the fecal one. Giardia was probably the one that you're thinking yep. of. Yeah, that's a fecal one. That was like Dexter got had had Giardia basically when I picked him up as a little seven week old puppy in a like rescue scenario and I remembered my brain flashed to big old pan of water that all the dogs were walking through and Mm -hmm. you know there was feces and it was a big kennel but still and he was like trying to poop but not nothing was coming out and then there was diarrhea and he had no appetite I'm like this is a seven week old puppy he should be eating so that was the big tip off for me on on that one and so is it dogs that hike a lot then are going to be more susceptible to something like Giardia and Lepto or are they more likely to contract those things at particular life stages? Like was Dexter more susceptible because he was so young and had such a tiny system? Yeah. Uh, Giardia was another one um, that, that I was going to mention that we do see quite a bit of. Yes. Kind of the two populations that are going to be very frequently uh, exposed to Giardia are going to be dogs that are coming out of shelter situations um, where there's a high volume of dogs. It's very difficult to keep dogs from tracking through each other's species or feces contaminated water. And then the other population, yes, is dogs that do hike in very, very wet areas. And, and kind of the, the main thing is is wet. You guys probably have that during certain times of the year out there in Oregon. And certainly um, for us here on the East Coast, you know, there's bogs and marshes and things like that, that they're tramping through and, and yeah, going to get exposed to it that way. Dog parks. I think here they get it quite frequently at dog parks. Yeah. Um, because yep. there'll be puddles and mud and, you know, everybody's tramping everywhere. And so yeah. I think that's where you'll see sometimes on the community bulletins, like there's been an outbreak of this park, might want to avoid it for a little while or make sure you're bringing your own water and not having your dog drink out of it or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, we'll let you continue on your list that <laughs> we interrupted you from. <laughs> oh, no, that's all right. Other things that, um, you know, we may not necessarily see so often, but certainly have to be on our radar. Um, I guess one in particular would be rabies. You know, you always think it's not going to happen to you, but it it can. Um, tick-borne diseases are certainly high. I know out, out here on the East Coast, we get things like Lyme disease. You know, Lyme was named for a town uh, just half an hour away from me. So we're certainly a hotspot for that here. There are other tick-borne diseases as well. Um, and then your fleas are pretty much going to be anywhere. Most of your GI parasites, your hookworms and your roundworms, your giardia, heartworm certainly is very regional. Um, and I'll actually send you a link. I found a, um, I was trying to look at some different regional things for some of those different parasitic diseases. And there's actually um, a map that I found that I can send you a link for if you want to post it. Um, oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, right. Because um, in the south, there's something called valley fever. They have that in Arizona. I yes, think. and I, but I don't know how they contract it. But I know it's sort of, sort of like lepto or giardia. That if they're spending time out in nature, out there, that they're quite susceptible to catching it, and it, it's often deadly. It's, I think it's really hard to treat. Yeah, yeah, that, it's one, not one on my radar. I, I'm sure I knew about that one a long time ago, mm-hmm. but since. I'm not, you know, it's not in this area, not one that I'm truly up on, but yeah, I I remember it being a a pretty severe one. Yeah. So the other disease that I recently learned about was blasto. Can you talk a little bit about what that one is? Sure. Yeah. I hadn't put uh, fungal diseases on my list, but absolutely. Oh man, there's a long list. 
<laughs> yeah, um, fungal diseases, and, and certainly the one that probably does come up more often than others is blastomycosis. It, it's, it, I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a communicable or a transmissible disease because really they're going to be getting it from the environment. They're not going to be getting it from another from animal, dogs. essentially. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, the fungi are, are funny little things. Um, they, they live freely, obviously, most of the time. So these things are out there. They're in the soil all the time. And it really is only when, you know, a certain set of circumstances where it can get, you know, under the skin and, and things like that. And it, will set up an infection and, and cause some really severe things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where I went to vet school had, was severe. a really big hotspot for it. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. That's blindness and skin diseases and it just, it, and it can, I think that yeah. one probably has a pretty high rate of death. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the trouble with the fungal disease is, is that it really can try to go anywhere. So your signs that your dog has it are really going to vary on depending on where the fungus decided to go in your dog. The most dangerous is, is certain when it's in the lungs. Um, mm. Those are the ones that are gonna have really high mortality rates. If you're lucky enough for it not to get lungs or brain, um, a lot of the other locations, while very serious, can cause very serious disease, can at least be livable and manageable. Yeah, oof, tough. Okay, so the ones we're mostly focusing on are communicable diseases that are more dog to dog, kinds of things that some we can prevent, some we can't. And so we want to kind of talk about the best ways to prevent these, maybe how to look for them, when to know to go to the vet, some of that kind of kind of thing. And before yeah. we start, like, I, I looked up Valley Fever. It is also fungal and very specific to the the Arizona area, but so also fungal valley fever. Yes. But yeah. That, that would explain why it's so very, very geographic and staying mm -hmm. there. And I guess as we move away from the fungal diseases, we just talked about all the scary things that can happen to them. Kind of remember your dog is not going to get that from another dog. I guess that's kind of the nice little takeaway is, you know, that right. very serious one. You don't have to worry about that one. Yeah, that is nice to know. Um, cause that one certainly can be scary. So then which of these diseases are kind of most dangerous in terms of the communicable ones? We'll go back to those. Which are kind of the most dangerous, maybe scariest for an animal? And which are like kennel cough where it's an inconvenience, but generally not too serious? As far as the ones that I mentioned, um, I think the most dangerous one is most obviously rabies. To date, to my knowledge, there has not been an animal that has survived being infected with rabies. It is 100% fatal um, once they have started showing signs. I didn't look this up, but I believe there have now been two humans that have survived being infected with rabies. I don't, I, I'm pretty sure it's two. So very, very, very deadly. And the nice thing about that one is that very, very, very preventable with, with vaccinations. So vaccine is definitely the way to go with, with rabies. Your tick-borne diseases kind of are up there. Um, if you've got just kind of your run-of-the-mill Lyme disease where you've got some joint pain and some aching and some fever, very, very treatable. A consequence of Lyme disease that can happen sort of after they've been infected chronically for a long time where it'll affect the kidney and those dogs will get a, and I think this only happens in dogs. I'm not sure that humans get the kidney form of it, but they will get a, a very, very serious uh, form of a kidney failure um, that oftentimes happens to dogs really in the, in the prime of their life. Whereas usually we think of kidney disease as affecting dogs that are much older. So that can be very tragic when that happens. 
Um, I wish I remembered uh, which tick disease Lincoln got because Lincoln, it was a few years ago now, all of a sudden his eye swelled up, like maybe bonked it on something or been bit by something. And then pretty soon he kind of puffed up all over and the the one spot wasn't so obvious because he was just puffy everywhere. And then his legs swelled up like sausages and he was super lethargic and we took him in. And this is a dog who like he would eat until he's on death's door, wouldn't touch food. <laughs> he was so lethargic. And so they didn't know what it was at first. And of course it was going to take a couple of days to get the results back, but they figured it was either a spider bite or a tick-borne disease. They can't treat for the spider bite. So they started him on tick meds and, and that is what it was. And it wasn't Lyme, but it was horrendous. And I never found a tick on him. Yeah. Ever. So yeah. I don't know when he picked it up, when he got it, nothing. Yeah, the couple of other tick-borne diseases that are out there that I was just going to kind of give some honorable mention to, um, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is very likely the one, because I think that one is more common out on your in your area of the woods. Ehrlichia, anaplasma, and babesia are a couple of others. Yeah, some of those can cause joint pains and fevers and things, but the other major thing um, that, they'll, that they can start to cause is like leaky blood vessels. So that's where you get all of the swelling. That's where the swelling came from, probably. And they'll bruise very, very easily. It can cause issues with low platelet counts and things like that as well. And, and other immune mediated type stuff. But, but yeah, it was likely one of those. Now, do those, so Lyme stays with them forever, right? If they've got it, it it's with them forever in some manner. Are the other ones that way as well? It's not thought to be that way in dogs. I think there's still a lot that we're learning with Lyme disease in dogs. You know, the question is always, you know, are they getting reinfected with, you know, are they getting re-exposed to ticks and getting reinfected with it? Or is it there for a long time? It's, it's, you know, there are certainly, you know, the vast majority of cases, you know, they'll get a case of Lyme disease, they clear it, they never have a problem again. Um, it seems to be a very small subset of dogs that continue to have chronic problems. Um, and a lot of times those are the ones that didn't have the joint pain and the fever and the aching. So we never knew when they were originally infected in the mm. first place. Oh, interesting. Mm. Well, here's the plug for giving your dog tick prevention treatment. <laughs> yes, prevention <laughs> so we- is definitely much better than trying to treat it later. Let's, so let's talk through that a little bit. I know that you don't tend to treat from the prevention side since you're mostly an ER vet, but I know there's various ways to deal with tick prevention. There are so many different products that you can choose from now. So many different classes of them. You know, there are uh, the Soresto collars, there are the tried and true topical products, and then there are a number of oral things that you can use that, that will, you know, kill the ticks as soon as they get on the dog. I did look this up for Lyme disease um, because of the way that the tick is going to infect your dog. Basically what happens is when the tick attaches, it has to prevent the blood um, from clotting where they've bitten. So what they're going to do is they're going to sort of spit out and regurgitate stuff uh, in their saliva that is going to prevent that from happening. And it's when the infectious organism that they have gotten infected with because they bit a mouse or a deer or something like that that has the organism, it's in their gut, they bring it up and they spit it out onto the dog. It takes about 48 hours for that whole activation process and them spitting it out to happen. 
So the main thing is really getting that tick off within that 48 hours. Certainly different species of ticks may have a 36 hour, a 48 hour longer, you know, give or take. Um, but it's, it's getting, it's preventing them from being on there for, um, you know, a long period of time, you know, looking at the various different products, seeing which ones, you know, you seem to trust that seem to work for you, pick one, stick with it, make sure you use it regularly. I think it's important if you live somewhere, especially where you are, there are ticks around. I have, uh, there are deer that basically live in my backyard and in the woods behind my house. Uh, and so it was last week I found a tick on spray. And so to have a tick key so that you can properly remove them is important. It's a super cheap, weird little piece of metal that you use to get them out. So you want to do prevention and you also want to be able to remove them if you find them. It's it's not the funnest thing in the world, but it's <laughs> it but it yeah. is kind of satisfying when you get it out and you look and you I always Ugh. stick them in a little plastic bag and I'm like I got all the bits, right? And I look and I you can see all their little legs. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. me cringing. Yeah. All of you yeah. non-medical people out there cringing right now like me. Well, I hate yeah, that stuff. All- yeah, all the all those all those little tools and things are mostly for for your ick factor. If you find yourself somewhere you don't have that fun little tool with you, don't be afraid. Get get it off your pet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wash your hands afterwards. Um, so buy off. more than um, one tick key. That's all I heard. Buy more than one tick key. Put it in the dog's that. backpack. Put one in the glove box. They they're cheap. Just do it. <laughs> yep, yep. And but the other thing I'm hearing from this is don't panic. If you've gone out on a hike and then you're doing a check and you find one and you get it off, probably not a lot to worry about. Right. Besides right. the ick, ick yeah. factor. I think everyone always, you know, everyone wants to rush into the ER and say, I found this tick on my dog. Can you test my pet now? Well, the answer is no. And and I think, you know, just like you mentioned, when Lincoln got that tick-borne disease, you never even saw a tick. Mm-mm. Um, Mm-mm. What I always say is, you know, the tick that you found and got off immediately is probably not going to be the one that's going to transmit something to your pet. If you're finding ticks on your pet, it just means you've got ticks in your area um, and you, you need to be using a preventative. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I believe also there's some places where they prefer to be on the dogs, right? So looking mm-hmm. in between their toes, in their armpits, places Behind where they can ears. kind of tuck in and hide. Um, yeah. Really yeah. Places. Yeah. They're going to want to go to places where, um, you know, the blood vessels are kind of close to the skin, so they don't have to do quite so much work. So yeah, areas where the skin's a little bit thinner is probably where they're going to be. So yeah, behind, behind the ears and the armpits, toes. Yeah. Those sorts of areas. Okay. Let's move on to a less gross. I don't know. Is there anything about diseases? that's not gross. Ticks are gross. <laughs> no. Heartworms are grosser that more grosser more gross Ooh, okay so we're going the other way we're going grosser <laughs> instead of less gross but heartworms sure, are about heartworm are heartworms, heartworms communicable? not between animals no um right. but certainly you know so we talked about tick-borne diseases so yes the the main concern with ticks are the things that are going to give your dog and i think one of the main things to think about with heartworm disease is again where where they're going to be getting it from and it's actually mosquitoes the areas of the country that have 
the most heartworm disease are the areas of the country that have the most mosquitoes. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of the main thing with that one is, is, you know, we don't have a really good way at this point to stop your mosquitoes from, from biting the pads. I don't think there are a whole lot of, you know, like those topical things that we'll put on ourselves necessarily, the medications to kill off the heartworm larvae, you know, so, so it's also, so we'll talk about the heartworm life cycle. The adult worms live inside your dog in some of the blood vessels near the heart and they are producing larvae. They're mating there and they're producing larvae. Those larvae kind of go on out and um, through the bloodstream, get picked up by the mosquito. The mosquito just kind of carries them around for a while. And then again, when they bite a bite a dog or and some of the other animals that are susceptible to heartworms, some of them will kind of get in there. Um, and then that larvae has to go through a whole bunch of different stages of maturation. And that can take a really long time. So you've got a really nice big long window between when those larvae infect your dog to that six months later when they get to be adults you've got that nice big long window to, to, to get rid of them and kill them off. Once they're adults, your heartworm preventatives, those monthly things that you give your dog, don't kill the adults. That's mm. why when a dog is, you know, tests positive for heartworm disease, um, it's a much, much different treatment because the, the your, your heartworm preventatives aren't as good at killing off the adults. There are lots of different protocols out there, but and one of them will involve using the, the monthly preventatives, but I'll kind of we'll kind of leave that alone for right now. It's it basically bottom line, it's not as good. Well, and so do dogs show a lot of symptoms prior to the because I guess that was my understanding. Like heartworm is you want to prevent against it because by the time they're showing symptoms, they're very far along in the process. Right. They're it's difficult to treat. The at the time the drug was very difficult to get. It was so, sort of not being it was hard to manufacture or something like that. So even if you wanted to pay for it, you might not be able to get your hand on the drug. So you better just prevent against it so that you don't have to deal with it. That's that's my understanding of the story of heartworms. Yeah. Yeah. So the the disease of heartworm, the the coughing, the shortness of breath, um, and all of the things that, it, that they're going to have from it are caused by the adults. Those right. um, maturing larvae not going to cause any issues at all. So again, much easier to kill them off when they're in the, when they're in that stage. The adulticide drug, so the drug that's used to kill off the adults, we've not had any issues getting it. I think it, it may just be that it's not as needed anymore. So kind of one of those supply and demand issues. Mm -hmm. you know, it's so much more prevented. I, as I kind of alluded to before, there are some different protocols about, you know, do we try to kill them off a little bit slower with lower doses stretched further apart using the heartworm preventatives to try to weaken them a bit. Lots of other different things to think about when it comes to heartworm disease. Yeah. You know, when, when they are going to treat a dog, they'll stage it as well and kind of see, okay, how bad and severe are your signs and usually gauge treatment based on, on how severe their signs are. Yeah. I was chuckling earlier because my computer popped up a reminder to give my dogs their heartworm meds tonight. So isn't that timely? <laughs> you, you do monthly heartworm meds? Well, no, they get, um, I'm not going to remember which one it is now. I just have it downstairs in my little box of goodies that I have to use, but <laughs> you know, all the flea and tick stuff. I actually don't think it's a, a monthly anymore. I think it's like every three months or something. Oh, I'm, I, I am team pro heart, man. You every, I take them in every six months. They get an injection. I don't Wait, have to Wait, what? I've it. never I'm heard of 100%. that. Oh, 
Never. Yeah. I wanted to talk to my veterinarian. Yeah, and I if you're so not much cheap like me, you, it, there's a yearly one that you can give that's just once a year. It's just, I asked about it and they're like, well, it basically costs twice as much as the six month dose. And I'm like, well, they'll be back in six months for their regular checkup. So I'll just have them get the six month one at, at the time. So it's not cheap. It's fairly expensive. I'm 120 well, something the dollars. But you don't have to think about too. it. I mean, None of it's cheap. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the hardest part about swallowing that pill when you have a lot of dogs is that it's not cheap to buy all the prevention. But, yeah. you know, Lincoln, when yeah. he got his tick disease, was in the vet all night long. Like, I think they gave him fluids and, of course, meds. And it was terrifying because we didn't know yeah. what it was. And so, you know, that cost for the prevention is very much worth it. Yeah, I think it's, oh, I think yeah. it's funny. So, You've got basically three somewhat random people. I mean, I'm a veterinarian myself, but you've got three people here who have, you know, it runs the gamut of all the different ways that you can prevent heartworm disease. I use the monthlies. Alyssa, it looks like you use the every three months. And Whitney, you're, you're using the pro heart, um, which that one actually, uh, it was, it's, I don't remember when it came on the market, but it went off market for a number of years. And I, I forget why. Um, and then is, is now back. I, I think they had dosing issues. I could be totally making that up, but I think that there was a dosing issue that they had to yeah. figure huh. out. Well, look at that. I'm learning more tonight about not having to set so many schedules to give things to my dogs. <laughs> if I can give them a shot. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, it's, there's, a, there's a strategy out there. If you're finding whatever you're using inconvenient, there's probably another strategy that you can look for and talk to your vet about. That's that's a part of, part of yep. your annual visit. That should be a highlight yep. quote from this episode, that right there. If you're finding it inconvenient, there's probably another way. What about ringworm? Ah, oh, oh, one I did not include uh, on my list. Uh, fungal? Is yeah, that also I'll fungal? back to fungal. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's fungal because that one's deceiving, right? It's not actually worms. No, it's not. It's, it's a fungus. And that one is definitely, uh, communicable, transmissible, uh, between pets for sure. I, I kind of, I don't know why I left that one off. And to people, right? That (laughs) one can go to people too. You don't want ringworm. No, no. Yeah. Again, more gross and, and inconvenient and, and not really deadly in the way that, maybe some of the other ones that we've talked about up to now can be um, because it is going to be just, just really your skin and hair and fur. The the fun part with ringworm is, is very often when, when you diagnose, at least in a pet, you go, Hmm, where's, where's the kitten? <laughs> it's uh, probably going to be uh, usually kittens. And, and the hard part about it is cats, even adult cats are oftentimes asymptomatic carriers on that one. Um, so that can be a challenge when you've got a, a dog or a person or another or a kitten in a household and they've got a whole household of cats. You've got to check everybody and treat everybody because those healthy looking cats could be carrying it around. So oh, I didn't. That's the I mean, part. I guess I've heard the part about cats, but I never I didn't really think about it in that way. I know that uh, one of my brother's dogs got ringworm and a couple of their kids got it, too. And it was just gross. It takes a while to run yeah. its course. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I think kennel cough is interesting amongst the communicable diseases because it's so transmissible and that it's, it reminds me of another disease recently mm. that 
It's not that big a deal for most pets, but for those that are immunocompromised, kennel cough can be very dangerous. And so looking at what is your responsibility if your dog comes down with it, like, and kind of what are the protocols around trying to keep kennel cough out of areas and so all of that. So I think it is a fairly interesting one to talk about, even though in some ways it it has milder effects, so maybe you would think it's not as big of a deal. Um, yeah, so moving, so let's move on to the kennel cough. You know, a couple of years ago when someone would say, oh, you know, does my dog have kennel cough? And oh my gosh, or oh, oh, my dog came home from daycare with kennel cough. I would say, would you be having that same anger type reaction if your kid came home from school with a cold? Kind of the same, right. same, similar idea. You know, the common cold, there's a bunch of different organ, different things that it could be. It could be a couple of different viruses and things like that. It's, it's not any one specific one and they're going to be everywhere. They're going to be more likely to infect the young and a little bit the immunocompromised. Um, and for the most part, not going to cause a whole big issue, but yes, very, very transmissible. I did make up a list of some of the different organisms that are involved in kennel cough, um, some of which we do vaccinate for, uh, some of which we don't. Um, so my list says Bordetella, parainfluenza, adenovirus, uh, canine distemper virus, canine influenza virus, canine herpes virus, mycoplasma, um, canine rheovirus, and canine respiratory coronavirus. So those are all under the kennel cough label? Yep. I did yep. not know that. Those, yep, those are all different <laughs> things. Is it a type of coronavirus? Yeah, there's a respiratory coronavirus for dogs as well. Yep. Mm -hmm. Which yep. is not the same as COVID-19. It is not. Nope. Yeah. Just to be yep. clear, don't be yep. freak out. You're not going to, nope. you're not going to give COVID to your dog and vice nope. versa. Uh, the, as, as was pointed out very often in the early days of COVID, um, one of the viruses that falls under the human common cold is actually the human coronavirus. Um, so that's something to also kind of keep in mind as well, that, um, you know, we're, we're not all that different dogs and, and people. So I did learn quite a bit more about kennel cough when my dogs had it in December. Um, and I was grateful that I figured out they had been exposed to a dog that had been exposed to kennel cough before I had gone anywhere. So it stopped with mine in terms of I didn't expose anybody else to kennel cough. Um, and it was really interesting, the symptoms and the incubation period and kind of how that worked. And so I think if I'm remembering correctly, what I learned is that the incubation period is seven to 10 days from exposure. Is that right? And, or typically I should say, yep. since there's the several source ones. that I found said two to 14, but I would say roughly a week, give or take a little bit is what okay. I usually say. And so in my household I had three dogs, they all were, uh, exposed to the, to the one dog, some more so than others. Cause they were sharing toys or whatever. All they got it on day seven, she coughed for 24 hours and that was it. Jet got it like the next day and he coughed for like two weeks. And then Lincoln, he actually was on antibiotics at the time. And I don't know if that's why he took so much longer to get it, but, but he was several days later and then he coughed like a day or two and then that was it. And so it was really interesting to see the really different reactions to it. 
and how that went through my dogs and the timeline of it and all that stuff. And because it took so long for it to cycle through, we had to quarantine for forever. It felt like until mm-hmm. everybody was done with it. And then we were far enough past it that we didn't feel like we could give it to anybody else. I mean, I think you'll have a, a similar thing, you know, when a, when a common cold goes through a household, everyone's going to get it just a little bit differently. And then the other trouble with kennel cough is that, you know, each of those, you know, half a dozen or so causative agents that I talked about might have very different um, time periods for how long they might still be infectious, how long they might be ill. Um, mm. So without doing testing, which most of the time we don't, it's, it can be really hard to know when it is safe to go back. And so how, so yeah, I think the reason we compared it to COVID-19 was because it seemed very similar to you could have been exposed and not known it because you don't have symptoms for so long after you're exposed. And so in my case, I was lucky to find out that my dogs had been exposed early enough that we didn't, hadn't gone anywhere kind of by happenstance, um, before then, otherwise it's super easy to transmit. Um, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't take very long for them to get it either from a dog. And I guess we haven't said yet, how, how is it transmitted? We keep saying it's easy, but we haven't said how. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be similar to, you know, your respiratory, uh, diseases in people, respiratory secretions, dog coughs, coughs, sneezes, dog sneezes. Um, like Alyssa said, sharing toys, sharing water bowls, um, and things like that. So it'll be very, it's very common to have outbreaks in boarding kennels, uh, very common to have outbreaks uh, in doggy daycares, um, you know, places where they're going to, dogs going to be in close contact, oftentimes maybe wrestling with each other, playing with each other and sharing items. And is nose to nose contact something specific? I feel like I've heard that, but maybe that's. Yeah. Not. I mean, obviously it's respiratory secretions and that's what's going to be coming out of a dog's nose. Time. So if they're, they're breeding nose to nose okay. for sure. Um, kind of similar to like what we okay. think about with COVID-19, you know, how long they're, they're in the vicinity of each other and, and breathing the same air. That's certainly going to affect the, the dose that you're going to get. Got it. All right. So we've talked about all these scary things or inconvenient at the least. Um, we probably should hit a little more on Parvo because I know that's the scary one as a puppy uh, in particular. Um, and then for the most part, we've got vaccines and things that can prevent it, but when they're itty bitty, they can't have those. So can you talk a little bit about Parvo, what it is, and then prevention? Parvo, sure. Yeah, we kind of skipped over this when we were talking about um, ones that are, are very dangerous. And I would put this one um, for those young animals in the in the pretty dangerous category. It is a virus. It's a very, very teeny tiny virus. And it's one that can be very, very hardy in the environment. So areas that have that have had it, it's, it's very difficult to get rid of it. It's a fairly new virus in dogs. It was pretty much unknown until about the 1970s. It was, and kind of like I talked about with the, some of the other things, every species has its own parvovirus. Humans have one, cats have one, mm. and it's actually thought that the cat one mutated and started infecting dogs. For the most part, it doesn't go back and forth between species. I did read somewhere that fairly recently they have found one canine virus that can actually go back and forth between cats and dogs. So, or um, parvovirus, I don't know if I said canine or so there is one parvovirus that can go back and forth between cats and dogs. I found that fairly recently. It is going to infect your very rapidly dividing cells in your body, which are going to be the cells lining your GI tract and your bone marrow. So that the very classic signs that we'll see with these puppies that get it are really, really profound vomiting and diarrhea. If we want to talk about gross, this one's gross. 
And the other very classic thing that we'll find with them is um, a really low white cell count because that's the the cell in the bone marrow that's kind of used up in your bloodstream most readily. Mm. So that puts them at risk for getting infected with lots of other things because they don't have the ability to to fight off, you know, your minor things. Is that what actually makes it deadly is that they get other infections or whatever? It's not necessarily the parvo that kills them? Yeah, yeah. So they'll they'll die basically from being septic, you know, even their normal um, gut bacteria start being able to kind of cross over and, and things like that. So yeah, Ugh. because again, they, their gut lining, um, you know, is, has been killed off. So it's very easy for, for those gut bacteria to just kind of cross over and, and make them septic. Yeah. And that one, it has quite a high mortality rate. Is that right? It seems like it's pretty hard to treat and it comes on really quickly. Yeah. yeah it, it does have a very high mortality rate with really aggressive hospitalization. It's survivability can be up to 80%. Um, I think the trouble is, is being able to get to that level of of hospitalization. Very often, these are going to be in dogs that have not even gone in for vaccines. You know, these are, you know, you know, people that can't even afford to bring their dogs in for routine visits. And so oftentimes, I think the high mortality oftentimes comes from not being able to afford care for these little puppies. Yeah, that one's a heartbreaking one. I know that it can hit unexpectedly with like a whole litter and then the whole litter's sick and it's really expensive and they lose mm-hmm. puppies and it's just an awful, yeah. awful yeah. thing. And then yeah. there's always that fear that yeah. it's still there. So then yeah. what do you do? Yeah. Um, the, the saddest thing that we had was uh, um, a number of years ago, a, a shelter, an outbreak in a shelter where, you know, a lot of the puppies that were in the shelter, you know, they lost entire litters to it. Ugh, yeah. That makes me sad. Yeah. So prevention for parvo is good news. The vaccine is very effective, but it with a little bit of a caveat, it does mat timing matters. You know, it, it matters whether mom was vaccinated. So again, you know, those those the problem with the shelters is oftentimes the moms that are coming into the shelter have not been vaccinated. Now they're stressed because they're a mom and oh, now they've got this big load of of um of a virus coming at them and, and at their puppies. The other the other place that we have actually seen it increase has been um actually in pet store puppies, which always surprises me a little bit because it seems like it would be in the pet store's best interest to really take into account the timing on these things. You've got your your maternal antibodies that you know if mom's been vaccinated, she can pass along these antibodies in the milk that are going to protect the puppies for for quite a long time. Um, the trouble is, is that each puppy, depending on how much they got while they were still in uterus before they were even born, how much milk they got, all of those can affect um, how long those maternal antibodies last in them. So if you start giving a vaccine before those antibodies have worn off, that vaccine is basically no good. And then two mm-hmm. weeks later, you think your puppy's okay, it goes off to its new home, but it's got zero, zero protection. So that's um, so something very careful with unvaccinated or newly vaccinated puppies. Yeah. I, so that was something I learned about with Tilly's litter. And that I did was I sent a um, blood sample off to a lab that sent me back. And now I'm not going to remember the name of that test. You probably know. They sent me back a report that said, based on Tilly's blood sample, your puppy's 
best window for getting their first vaccines was seven weeks in her case, but other dogs, it might be earlier or it might be later. And I've seen a couple litters that have done that since that, um, it was more like nine weeks or 10 weeks. And the idea was that you hit the right window because otherwise that first vaccination could be just worthless. So it was really interesting to have that tool and feel good about, you know, when, my puppies were getting vaccinated. Yeah. I, I honestly, before, when, when you posted that you were doing that test, um, I had actually never heard of it. I didn't realize that it was a thing. And you know, being emergency medicine, again, not my area of expertise probably comes up a lot more in repro medicine, but yeah, I can, I can certainly see how it, how it works and everything like that. I, I think the takeaway is, is when you bring home your eight, nine, 10 week old puppy and okay, they've had their first vaccines. Unless someone has done that and knows that, yes, it was done in that ideal window that, you know, it's a, a reason to just be a little bit protective and, until they've had that second one. And we know that, okay, their maternal antibodies are gone and we can go on making sure that, you know, the dogs that you were around are, are healthy adults. You know, you don't want your brand new puppy that you just got and you you, you don't know what maternal antibodies were socializing with the either the puppy or the teenage dog that just came out of a shelter. Um, mm. So just being 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 a little bit smart about who you're socializing your new puppies with. Yeah, we probably could do a whole nother episode on socializing puppies and what that looks like and how to make sure they're still safe while doing that, but we probably don't uh, have the time today <laughs> to cover that particular topic. It Well, and it is kind of a whole other kettle of fish. So I think it's just at this point important to say like socialization is super important. It's also a very specific window that's very well known at this point. And then preventing things like parvo is super important. And there's a specific window there. And so there are some real considerations and kind of risk management to consider about, well, which risk is greater and how do I, how am I smart about socializing my puppy and keeping my puppy safe to the best of my ability and that that's. Yeah, that would be a, a whole other Big thing. Topic. And then and then what what is socialization? Because that's I think it's another big topic getting to be <laughs> yeah, more well understood in some respects, but still kind of it sounds like it should be socializing and it's not. And I think we talked about this a little bit with Liz Randall yeah. very, very mm -hmm. early on, yeah. but a good be another good topic to revisit and see what the latest and greatest thoughts are around socialization, flooding, all that stuff. All right. So we've talked about all this scary stuff. Now everybody thinks uh, their dogs are going to get a million diseases. So how do we best go about preventing these things um, to the best of our ability? What does that look like? Yeah, I think having a conversation with your, your veterinarian at that annual exam or that every six month exam most general practitioners are very happy to discuss what are what the risks are for your dog, what the best preventative strategies are going to be. If you find yourself with a vet who really isn't interested in talking about that, might be a good one to to find a new vet because that's that, that's really what your annual exam is there for. Talk about what what sort of lifestyle your dog has, um, what vaccines are appropriate, what preventative strategies are appropriate for your dog, and then you know again. You, well, socialization is a whole different topic. Being smart about 
who your dog is socializing with, perhaps taking them to the dog park and letting them socialize with every dog that happens to show up at that dog park is perhaps not the, not the best way to go. Yeah. And generally speaking, your vet's going to guide you towards vaccinations, preventative treatments for, you know, heartworm fleas, things like that. I know that there's a lot of uh, controversy around vaccines sometimes. Personally, I didn't go to vet school and I don't know the science behind it and I don't plan to. And so um, I find a vet that I trust and that I know does that kind of research themselves. And that's who I'm going to listen to because I'm not a vet and I don't know. Yeah. Mostly the controversy is around dosing and how big the dose is. And so it's there are quite a few vaccines where the dose is the same, no matter what the dog is, is my understanding, and that that is is really difficult for some folks. And so some people choose to do titers, I guess it's called, where you, mm-hmm. you're checking the level of antibodies to see if they need to be vaccinated again. And But some places, I guess countries, whatever, depending if you're traveling with your dog, like will or won't accept titers. And so you might have to vaccinate them if you want to travel. So there's there ends up being some rules around that. And yes, yeah, some controversy in around vaccinations yeah. and not just like, do you need to do them? So I not so much the, well, it's fine. They can get lepto and you can just treat it. Like that's not usually what the conversation is there tends to be very specific about, well, if you've, va- how often do you need to vaccinate and what is the dosage? Yeah. Some very interesting cases around veterinarians losing their license because they're only half dosing the chihuahuas yeah. and all of that kind of yeah. stuff. You can, you can Google that yeah. on your own. <laughs> and, and I, and I think, you know, I think this is also coming up now with, 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 uh, with ourselves as well. Um, what is your, your, your personal comfort level with vaccinations for yourself? Is it going to be similar for your dogs? You know, your acceptable risk with your dogs, you know, what you're willing to have them be exposed to and things like that. It's going to, you know, having that discussion again, you know, when, when there's, when there's hesitancy, the encouragement now is talk to your doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if you're feeling hesitant with vaccines, talk to your doctor, have a, ha, you know, have a conversation with your, with your dog's veterinarian, you know, someone, someone who can give you the pros and the cons. And I, I think for those people who are vaccine hesitant, even with their dog, as long as you are educated about your risk and maybe what things maybe you should avoid doing, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's going to be up to you. Obviously I'm, I'm not out there in general practice doing it because I just don't like those conversations anyway, but it's, it's something to to keep in mind. Yeah, that was, I think that here, um, you know, they don't, you don't have to do uh, Bordetella and canine influenza, but because my dogs um, travel with me a lot, I always did that even for my dogs who didn't travel because the ones who were traveling might bring it back with them. And so there were a couple of those sort of optional ones that I would choose to do because of the lifestyle that I have with my dogs, where if you're kind of living on your own by yourself and they're not exposed to much of anything or not going anywhere, your conversation might be different. It's a gr- well, and I know that was Lyme is the one that I always wanted, um, or maybe it's not a vaccine anymore. I don't know. But yes, there was one of those that was optional and or maybe it was lepto that other people didn't care about. And I'm like, no, my dogs are out doing all kinds of, I, I, no one can see my hands, but 
giant deer bone that Sprite <laughs> drug. And I'm like, and every time they find bones, I get so mad because I know I just have to take them. And then I got to drag them like all the way up the hill to the trash can <laughs> because otherwise they, they just keep going back to it. So I all of the things that they can get from wild animals and feces and I'm like, yes, vaccinate for all those things because my dogs are in it, man. <laughs> all right. Is there anything else that you think people should know about communicable diseases? Maybe is there a general rule of thumb for when should they go see the vet or when should you call the ER to bring them in for things like this, that kind of thing? I think the, the big one we, we kind of talked about with 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 kennel cough, I I think there's 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 almost always a level of denial when I'm in the ER and I tell someone that their dog has kennel cough. Um, they're almost always bringing them in because they think their dog is choking. <laughs> they're oh, insisting yeah. that their dog is choking. Yes. It's totally what um, it sounds like. Yeah, it, it, is. it is. And and I I think most of the time, unless you've had a dog that's had kennel cough, you, you don't know what a dog coughing sounds like. And I I think one of the things to kind of keep in mind is that yes, the the cough can can sound terrible. I remember when mm-hmm. I was a kid and I would have, I had walking pneumonia almost every year. My mom used to have to tell me, just, just oh. go in a different room, honey. I can't listen to you cough anymore. Oh. You need to. And I'm still running around playing and feeling fine. So I think that's kind of the thing is you have to look at your dog's behavior as well. You know, if they're still running around and, and eating and drinking and wanting to play with their, their housemates and things like that, uh, most likely you don't need to, to take them to the ER even as bad as it sounds, they're, 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 they're probably doing okay. And it's more inconvenient to them than anything else. Um, warning signs would be, you know, they, they don't really want to eat their respiratory effort seems increased. Even when they're not coughing, they'll, they'll have, you know, dogs that are truly having trouble breathing or choking will have this very characteristic where they kind of stretch their head out, even when they're not, uh, not coughing, you know, they'll kind of just stretch, kind of just trying to straighten everything out. Mm-hmm. Um, give themselves a nice straight shot down in, into their, you know, their lungs. If you've got an older dog that has heart issues anyway, always best to be safe rather than sorry and have them seen if they're doing any coughing. And then, I, and I think the, the other thing that very often people will bring their animal in thinking, thinking that it is, and it turns out to be kennel cough is, is actually bloat. Um, and it's actually very difficult for us over the phone to tell whether someone is describing mm-hmm. signs of bloat or if they're coughing. Um, oh. so certainly the, the signs of, oh my gosh, their, their belly looks distended. They really can't even lay down and get comfortable. I guess I, those would be warning signs of bring them in and it's not likely to be kind of cough. And what about some of the other things? I mean, GI upset, you know, there's lots of those diseases that are more like GI upset or, but even some of the like ringworm that sure, kind yeah. of stuff, what should people be looking for? Yeah, with, with GI upset, you know, people will will rush them in for one single episode of vomiting because they never vomit. And I'm like, well, you know, unless something that you know they got into was toxic or, or dangerous, you're probably okay. You know, I usually say 24 hours um, to give it. Um, obviously, if if at some point during that they're not wanting to eat or they're looking, you know, they they really don't even want to get up. They're they're feeling pretty down and out. Yeah. You know. Blood in the vomit is one that'll get me to the ER mm-hmm. real quick. Honest, that's funny. That that was one that I was going to come circle back to that actually blood in the vomit mm-hmm. or diarrhea, not necessarily uh, a trigger point. Really? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dogs GI tracts will bleed for very benign reasons. They can certainly bleed, bleed for very serious ones. So these other things that I'm describing, you know, are they still eating? Are they still peppy and running around? Are they acting like their belly's painful, you know, standing there all hunched? Those are more the signs that I'm going to go by being the ER veterinarian about how serious do I need to get on this? Mm. 
and, and the presence or absence of blood, not necessarily. Um, certainly unless you know they got into something like rat poison right. is going to make them bleed, not necessarily a, a major concern. Interesting. I would not have guessed that. That might be why my vet looked at me funny one time when Tug had some blood in his stool. And I was like, there's something wrong with him. There must be something wrong with him. Like, she's like, it's okay. Are you seeing any other signs? And I wasn't, there was nothing else wrong with him. And after a while it went away and it was fine. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I guess that's why yep. I didn't those other- I had that, that explained to yep. me before. Yeah. Yeah. Those other things are, are definitely um, way more indicative of, of how sick they really are. So yeah, it's, it's very, the blood is obviously very visible to us. And I would say, well, it's not normal, but not a panic button. It, that's not true for urine though. Is it like, if you see blood in their urine, well, blood in their urine, even your your average urinary tract infection is going to cause bloody urine. You know, when, when dogs and cats come in, or I guess I'll, I'll just talk about dogs. Um, <laughs> dogs come in with bloody urine. I'm almost always going to say, you've probably got a urinary tract infection. Certainly we do the testing and we check and look, um, but most likely that's what it's going to come down to. Cats certainly are their own little thing. But that maybe then that can wait the, like you can wait to yeah. see your regular veterinarian. Yeah. You don't necessarily yep. need to right. rush to the ER for yep. that one. Similar, yeah. similar um, to people. I always, you know, when someone is on the phone saying, should I come in or should I not? I was like, well, if it was you, would you call your doctor in the morning or would you go see the ER now? That usually is, is, is a pretty good way to, to look at it. The, you know, as far as bloody urine goes, um, any straining and nothing coming out, especially in a male is, is certainly cause to, to go in because they can actually get blockages of the urethra from stones and, and other various things as well. Um, which certainly is going to happen more in a male because they've got a longer urethra, um, and a bone involved as well with, that females don't have. And would you call that an emergency like ER yes. visit? Okay. Yes. Straining to urinate, especially in a male without any production, um, is cause for an emergency visit. Yes. Um, I feel like we could do another episode on this is an emergency. This is not. <laughs> that would probably be more my area of expertise than what we talked about tonight, to be honest. You you would probably find that episode to be quite satisfying. Right? You can just say, stop coming in yeah, for this. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we should take this opportunity to give a big shout out to all the veterinarians out there, including you, <laughs> Laura, you. because yes. I know that all of you are working so hard and that, you know, if you have a pet and it's probably not the people on this uh, that are listening to this podcast that are mean to veterinarians, but be nice to your veterinarians, to your vet techs, support those folks because there aren't enough of you and you deal with so many yes. different things. We have certainly talked on the podcast about how many things you're supposed to know as a veterinarian uh, about so many different animals. And it's, it's really too much. We appreciate you. And, um, and I also just want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us today, because there are so many things out there that we could know, and we could probably go on forever and ever, but we've probably taken up enough of your time already. <laughs> all right. It's, it's been fun to talk about. So that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast so you can join us for our next episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or by visiting our website at www.caninehijinks.com. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time.